Hello, this is Melissa. It's Real History. Today is Thursday, the 20th of July, and I am joined with Osman from Somalia. Hello. Hello, Melissa. Good to be with you. Nice to speak with you again. So how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Good. A, another fine day in Somalia. You were telling me that you had such nice weather, pretty temperate most of the time. Yes, everything south of the mountains in the north, which face the Gulf of Aden and the eponymous Gulf countries of Arabia, which are very hot. Everything south of the mountains is pretty temperate. And it's quite stable the year round, you know, 30 degrees, 32 degrees Celsius maximum. Ah, um, nice. But the mountains get pretty hot. Nothing like the Gulf, but they get up to like 39 and, and thereabouts, which is very hot. Yes, it is. Uh, that's about... I've been in 39 to about 41 for the last few weeks, and that's not normal for this time of the year. Usually it hits that in August, so it's been quite, quite hot. Not pleasant. I, I just yeah. wanted to mention before we really get into a conversation that this is going up on the 20th of July, but you have a, a trip planned, and so we are recording this on the 7th. So I just want to say that if some catastrophic event has occurred between today and the 20th, we're not going to be talking about it. <laughs> sure, that's understandable. <laughs> you have such an interesting perspective on things because of where you've traveled and lived. And if you wanted to just dive in a little bit and talk about your childhood where you were born, why you were born there instead of Somalia, where, you know, your growing up time. You want to share a bit of that? Yeah, sure. I'll begin with the fact that I was born in Kampala, Uganda, on account of the fact that my father was a diplomat there, for the Somali government. He worked for the Foreign Service for, by that stage, he was posted abroad for the when I was born, he'd been posted abroad for three years. He started off as the first secretary at the embassy and uh, rose to charge d'affaires when the ambassador was replaced. Um, so he rose fairly quickly as a, as a diplomat and he was, he was fairly talented, good at his job. He could speak several languages, four languages fluently. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I was born there. My mother had joined him when she was carrying me, so I almost was born in Somalia, which is <laughs> which is my claim to fame. So we we were in we were in Uganda. It was an interesting time. The famous Idi Amin had been president, and um, my father knew him personally. He would go to the state house to see him, and actually took me along on a few occasions. <laughs> and a uh, famous story in my in my household is that I was very scared of the of the big man. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, that that was something my father used to find very amusing. Um so we were there two years and then my father stopped being a diplomat for the Somali government and joined the opposition. And the reason for this was because there had been a war between Somalia and Ethiopia. 
and the Soviet Union and Cuba were involved on Ethiopia's side. And if it hadn't been for the pronouncement of the United States, the, they all three would have invaded Somalia. And the Americans said, well, if you go over the border to Somalia, because the Somalis stepped over the border and went into what is Ethiopia. So they were pushed back, took six months, and not many African countries fight off the, the Russians. And yeah, it was it was a pretty bad time for Somalia, and there were recriminations, and and and, and there was a there was a coup attempt, and mm-hmm. so the guy that was leading the coup attempt was well. Let me say a little bit about Somali society. It's 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 based on clans, so it's, Somalis are pretty unitary as as a nation. They speak one language and and have identical customs up and down the the land, but yeah, they 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 organize in large family units called clans and so there are four big ones and nowadays unofficially one small one which is a collection of minority groups but anyway going back to 1978 after the war with Ethiopia and coming the the army coming back to Somalia there were there was a lot of un- unhappiness amongst the military guys as you can imagine and they weren't happy with the then president so there was a coup attempt, and, and as it so happened, the, the guy leading the, the coup attempt at the time was from our part of Somalia. So he was a kinsman of ours. Um, so that meant everybody who was related to him was suddenly under suspicion, and, and it was getting pretty dangerous. People were being arrested, being called back if they were, they were based abroad, like my father. So he had a decision to make, and uh, he decided to working for the government and so we moved to a neighboring Kenya after stopping off in a few other countries briefly. How old were Greece. you when your father stopped being a diplomat and moved you to Kenya? I was two years old ah. at the time. I have good memories of um, you know snapshots of, of what it was like in, mm-hmm. in, in Kampala. I mean we lived on the embassy grounds, he had his office downstairs, as I remember it, and, and we lived above, and you know, there was a nice smart garden. I believe the Somali government still has the same property, and it may have been renovated since then, but um, yeah, it was, and, and it's, it's a fine, fine country, Uganda, I mean, it has a, a lot of wonderful things. Sadly, I haven't been back, <laughs> I've been meaning to go back, but I haven't around to it yet. So yeah, I was two years old. Um, uh, we, we ended up in, in Kenya. We stayed there for a year. And whilst in Kenya, my father was part of. Uh, he joined. Uh, he was part of the the founders of uh, an organization called the Somali Salvation Democratic Front, which was okay. pretty famous at the time, and it was the first opposition group. Well, before you tell me, I'm. Dictatorship in Somalia. I, I, I want to hear about the opposition, but before we get there, I have two questions that have come up. First of all, your father, you met Idi Amin. Your father knew him. What was his overall yes. assessment of the man? Did he ever share that with you? Did he have reminiscences that he shared with well, you? Well, he, he. Yeah, he talked about him at, 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 at great length. He said basically he was nothing like the media image of him. He was quite a shrewd manipulator of the media. Mm-hmm. So he would say one thing to the press and do something else. 
he would threaten actions that he would take against, uh, for example, British interests, and um, all of the the networks would be activated, and there'd be a response. And, and like he would say, he would be visiting a summit that he hadn't been invited to that was taking place um, in in Britain, for example. And so there'd be like heightened security and all kinds of things uh, because he he played up on that image of being uh, reckless and, and, and erratic. Mm-hmm. Um, but he would he would go off and do something else. And when he did something else, he would call my father and, uh, and say, you know, I'm I'm here, and they think I'm going to travel to a such and such place. It was it was pretty incredible. And the reason why he he took to my father is because my father was quite gutsy at one point in in trying to free a bunch of Somali truckers who had been caught taking contraband goods across the borders between uh, Kenya and, and, and Uganda. So the Ugandans would have been losing revenue if these men were guilty of this. So the, the penalty was a very lengthy prison sentence and confiscation of your goods. And occasionally people were, were, were executed because it was a dictatorship after all. So those guys were in big trouble. And so one of the first things my father did as a diplomat there was uh, get about 50 of them freed, and but their vehicles were confiscated. And Idi Amin was dealing with this personally, and, and so he got to know my father that way, and liked the fact that he stood up for his people and, and that kind of thing, and, and so he he was on good terms with him for the mm-hmm. for the duration of his, his posting there. Mm-hmm. So he would periodically call him and tell him how, how he was going to play a certain trick on the media, or, or, or whatever the case may be. And, you know, my father would tell us this several, several times. I mean, back home in London, I have a, have a picture of him, my father, attending one of the, the functions at the State House with all the other press corps, the, the Europeans, Americans, and and he's, he's there, you know, having shaken hands with the, the president of Uganda. It's, <laughs> I look at it now and I think, wow, you know, and that's part of history. But um, it was just his job at the time. He, he right. said he was an interesting man, um, nothing like the, the media portrayed him as mm-hmm. um, and that's pretty much what I what I remember from the things my father said well the second question that was raised for me before we move on into the story is what was Russia and Cuba after with this failed attempt when the US said no don't go in to Somalia what were they after was this just expansion or was there some resource that the Russians wanted? No, that's a good question. I mean, from the Russians' point of view, it's very logical. I mean, they were very close ally with Somalia at the time, and Somalia was their biggest partner militarily in in, in the region and did a lot of things with them in the rest of Africa. The Soviets trained up the, the military in Somalia to a very high level. And they would be spending gold. It wasn't, it wasn't printed money like we see nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the military was really built up. There were Soviet experts here. Ironically, many of them, the majority, I would say, were Ukrainians, because Ukraine mm-hmm. was the most developed part of, of the Soviet Union up until it broke up, mm-hmm. uh, which is an irony, you know, considering where we are today. But, yeah, so the, what, what the case was is Somalia was socialist. The neighboring country, Ethiopia, was socialist, but there was a little dispute between them. I say little, I mean, I'm 
big dispute between them over uh, uh, the eastern part of Ethiopia, which is ethnic Somali, and the, the Somalis claim that Westerners had given that land to the Somali government at the time had made that claim. So they went to war over this. But what the <laughs> Russians wanted, the Soviets wanted, was for both socialist uh, Ethiopia and socialist Somalia to work together and to be under the umbrella of the Soviet Union, which is a very logical thing. Um, I mean, I've thought about this many, many times. Not that I'm saying I support the Soviet Union, but they tried very hard to make sure these two countries didn't go to war and that they would all work together. But the Somali leadership refused and went to war. And so Soviets had warned them and said, if you do, we will be on the Ethiopian side. Mm. Again, a logical reason. Ethiopia mm-hmm. has a larger population and you know, Somalia is a tiny country, much smaller than it is today, back then. But they're quite good at fighting. So <laughs> it took six months because they got quite far into Ethiopia to bring them back. And so the Americans said, well, if you do cross their border, we will come into this. And two superpowers don't normally cross swords. So that's where it ended. And Let Somalia me. then went to expel the Soviets. Um, so just one night, he and the, the, the president of Somalia said, all Soviets have to leave Somalia within 48 hours or 72 hours, um, if I remember correctly. And was this is, short on um, the heels of this with Ethiopia? Was this shortly yeah, after? So it was, yeah, okay. it was like uh, months afterwards. And then the, the coup attempt happened immediately after that. So it was one thing leading to another, leading to another, and I mean, the, 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 the then president of Somalia is a man called Siad Bari, who had his good points, but um, he presided over quite a lot of bad things. So yeah, that's what happened, and uh, it affected our family, you know, directly, right. as well as millions, millions of other families. I have to say. Okay, so now we, your your father is not a diplomat. He be, because of his clansman's involvement in the coup attempt, he now is feels that his he and his family are in jeopardy, and he joined. What was the name of the opposition front again? Yeah, they were called the Somali Salvation Democratic Front. That's not what they were called in the beginning. There was then a merger between. Smaller organization, a little, little later, but that's what it was called um, ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, up until it disbanded in the, in the 90s, in fact. Mm-hmm. So he was the only civilian, or one of two civilians, if I remember correctly. The rest of the guys who founded it were um, military men, so guys who'd been involved in the war with Ethiopia. And... It was, it was a strange time. I mean, later on, my father said to me, "Well, you know, everybody was pretty emotional. Was angry. They'd lost, the, you know, their livelihoods, their, their their life as they knew it. So, it was probably not the best idea to start giving press conferences, and which is what they did, which is what he did. I mean, he did a lot of press work in in Kenya at the time, about what they were going to do, and so on and so forth, and." Would they are an opposition to um, a, a legitimate government at the time, so it was a very difficult situation. Um, but anyway, it, it grew. It became, as I say, the first opposition movement against the dictatorship in Somalia. And um, my father was involved with that for about three or four years, 
We moved on to Libya for that purpose. We were there as a family for another four years. And that's, that's pretty much the, um, that chapter. So that chapter concluded with your father deciding to move the family to London, England. Is that right? Correct, yes. Yes. So it's interesting. I didn't, I didn't, I guess I didn't pick up on this when we've spoken before, but you're Somalian and you actually spent almost no time in that country because of your father's work and his involvement in the opposition. Yeah, that's, um, as I say, it had a big impact on our, our family's life. Yeah. And for me personally, as an individual, I mean, it's, it's kind of marked me because uh, I always wanted to go back to Somalia as, as a child as a, because it was, uh, it was expected. You know, mm-hmm. we were only away because my father was, was working abroad. Suddenly that kind of was postponed. Then it became we're away because, you know, until the dictatorship moves out of town, um, so to speak. And, when that happens, we'll move back. But actually, that came and went also, and was followed by something else. Uh, so people had to keep waiting. But anyway, when I when I was old enough, I, I did manage to go back to Somalia. So I, I fulfilled that part of my uh, my own inclination and, and, and destiny, I guess. You have a sister and a couple of brothers. Where are you in the family lineup? Oh, I'm I'm the eldest, so only my, eldest. myself okay. and my sister were in the in Uganda, and the rest of my family were born, you know, afterwards after that period. Okay, all right. So you were seven years old, and your father took you to London. Yeah, I was uh, almost seven. You know, I was a couple of months shy of seven. Um, but yeah, it's it's. It's a pretty, pretty interesting thing, you know. I, I, I could speak Arab quite well then, having lived in Libya for four years. I'd done three years of, I mean, they start school very early there. So I'd done three years of, of schooling and, and, and I knew a fair bit of mathematics, for example. So going to England was, was a real shock to the system. I couldn't speak English, but I knew a lot of things at the school. So the teachers were, were a little bit surprised that I was, I was a bit ahead in, as I say, mathematics and things that, that children are not typically introduced to in the, in the state schooling system in the, in the UK mm-hmm. at a young age. So that was one of the first things that, that I noticed, the, the big difference between my, my, my peers and, and myself. And I managed to learn the language fairly quickly, so that was good, you know, about six months. But... Arabic kind of disappeared. I mean, I can I can barely pick it up now, which is a very disappointing. But yeah, I never had the opportunity to go back to Arabic-speaking country, um, apart from the odd visit to the Middle East. But yeah, going to London was was complete change. I mean, there was there was a, a kind of what looked like a sea nearby, you know, the English Channel, but it was cold, the place was, you know, grey skies, whereas in Libya you had the Mediterranean and you had pretty fine weather. Um, it was, it was, it was a complete different country, different society, mm-hmm. different um, setup, different politics. I actually like the London I found in the, in the, in the early 80s, 
as compared to the London of today. I mean, it, it has a kind of richness that, you know, an authenticity that you can't really find anymore, sadly. So the, the way you still had. Yeah, London had um, a lot of, uh, its old traditions were still still visible. So the local pubs and, and, and certain accents in certain parts of town were very prevalent. But um, now it's it's very different. It's a very international city today as compared to what it had been then. So I, I was present in London for a very long time. I and mean, in essence, I still am a Londoner, but um, I've seen it change. And that's quite, you know, it's quite something now to look back on. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible, actually. So that sense that that uh, London had uniqueness and the pubs and its own culture and everything, that was from the mid-80s when you were there. When did you start noticing the internationalization and the kind of standardization of the culture? I think that really happened in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, so from 92 onwards, you, you start to get people from different parts of the world, you know, middle class people, educated people coming for work, I guess, or adventure, whatever the case may be. And the numbers just kept growing. Um, so by 97, when the famous election victory, landslide election victory of Tony Blair happened, after that, I think immigration became a big thing in um, the United Kingdom. And it's a massive thing now. It's an issue for for public debate. Uh, there's a lot of friction in in the society over over immigration. Um, and as I say, that wasn't really the case back in the in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. It was still, uh, in my considered view, uh, from what I remember, a very homogeneous society. You had uh, ethnic minorities, but even they were part of the society. I mean, they had long connections to the United Kingdom, so people from the Caribbean or the Indian subcontinent who had a long connection with the United Kingdom. But after that, in the 90s, you started to get people from very different places, um, different parts of Asia, different parts of Africa that had no real ties to Britain, historically, the Middle East, and then, a little later, when you have the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, you have even more people coming. I'm not saying the two are connected, but it just became a thing. Mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't there before. So you will notice it. It is a big talking point now uh, amongst the members of the public, and it's something to be resisted by political elites, which, yeah, what can you say? It's It's... It's, it's typical of uh, many liberal democracies in, in, say, Europe, and immigration is also a big thing in North America. So it all happened in the last 30 years. And I guess, you know, I, I mean, we know from listening to Alan's talks that this, has, this was actually on the books, a, st a standardization of... Yes, when you step back and you you even encounter some of these reports, uh, plans for the future, you you know it can be shocking at first, but 
and if you've been around for a couple of decades, uh, then it doesn't really come as a surprise. I think you you realize oh, some things at play here couldn't really happen by itself. A lot of facilitation, a lot of um, energy goes into this, be it from NGOs or political actors that actually advocate this in the countries that are accepting large numbers of, 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 of immigrants from other parts of the world. And uh, your, your point about different um, different people, you know, different cultures, that's, that's the key, I think. That's what really uh, changes the the place, um, as I experienced in London. I think just Alan's observation of the UK was he felt that the writing was on the wall for this part of the agenda as far back as the 70s, the, even the early 70s. What struck him, though, was seeing how quickly Canada was getting up to speed with the same kind of... It, what he witnessed and he learned from talking, you know, meeting a few people in his travels is that there there was actually a plan, it was a concerted effort to make sure that the people who were coming into any given country had as little to do with a sense of connection to that country as they possibly could. So you're talking about Caribbeans going into London where there's a, a natural affinity, there's some older part of Britain's empire, it makes sense, as opposed to what you have now. And the same thing was true, I think, and well, it is true in the in the U.S., where we've had a traditional kind of immigrant who has come into this country at least in the last fifty years, sixty years, and the that that southern border be, opened up. That that southern border that people complain about vehemently, who don't know what the agenda is, that is actually open to people from all over the world. You're getting an Arab influx into the U.S. from the southern border. So, it's, you know, it's it, it, you're definitely looking at strategy here. Yes, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, I guess, pretty shocking for the, 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 the people who don't really know about these uh, plans, long-term plans, but, um, when you've encountered these uh, documents yourself, you, you, you will you will see that it's it, it is exactly that. It's it's a, it's a policy, it's a plan, and it's something that's that's just unfolding, mm-hmm. and it has its time. I think this uh, is but, a hard. I mean, your your average. Uh, Go ahead. You cut out just for a minute. You were saying your the your average. We were talking about people not understanding that the immigration is a long-term plan. This is long-term planning, and you were just going to say the average, and then that's when you dropped off. You said the average. Yes, the the average person, member of society, is is completely unaware. I mean, that's the that's the really uh, powerful thing to take away. I mean, if you if you are just going about your business and, and suddenly you're faced with the, this big change of, of 
immigration in this case, but it could be other things that are happening to change um, how your your life is in your in your neighborhood or your your community. To use that word, it can be perplexing, it can be bewildering, disturbing even. But once you realize there is actually a, a policy and and uh, and a lot of people are working diligently to follow this policy, then it, it makes sense, and then you can achieve a kind of calm within mm-hmm. yourself. It doesn't necessarily make things better, but it, it frees you up from from anxiety and that sort of thing. I think Which, it also. Uh, I'm pretty sure that that it causes. Yes, I think it also. It's only by having awareness of the agenda and these long-term plans can you get that calm that you're talking about but if that's the only way possible that there is an opportunity for you to view someone at your level who's been presented to you as the other that you're supposed to hate and be angry and you can say no wait a minute they we are victims here of a long-term plan so the people who are flooding into a country for instance it i can hear this all the time if i happen to listen to the news or just somebody in my area who's talking who's oblivious to any kind of an agenda there's this anger and tension that comes out because it's so easy to blame a group of immigrants, for instance, on every problem that you're experiencing, but of course, they're not the cause of the problem. They're a symptom. Yeah, it's absolutely. I, I think you know that's that's very well said. I mean, something I, I've been thinking about in the last few months is not just with this issue, but with with everything, pretty much policy-wise that you may encounter in your in your daily life. Is that um, you know you have this theory? Uh, I think you may be familiar with it, the the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. where they sort of put people in a, in a categorize people in a, in a pyramid, and you know it's, it's about human motivation. So at the bottom would be sort of shelter and, and community, and a little bit above that would be sort of getting satisfied in material needs that are. You know what you might consider luxuries, and, and above that would be what they call self-actualization. So the guys at the bottom are struggling to survive, and the, the guys at the top have everything and, and have time to think and reflect and enjoy themselves. That's uh, a theory that that came about in, in uh, I think in the 40s, mm-hmm. pretty sure early 40s. But I, I thought about that and I said, well, nothing really changes. Uh, now, that's no real different uh, presentation other than something, you know, being given a new name or old wine in, in new bottles. Um, it's exactly the same as the, the the way the old Egyptian societies were organized. So yeah, at the top, you had the all-powerful pharaoh, who is considered a deity. And then you had priests who had a lot of time. They didn't have to farm. Then below them you had the, the, the government functionaries, the scribes, and so on. And below them you had farmers, soldiers, and, and down at the bottom the people who really have to work for a living. 
seek out their survival. So who who can really change things, and and who do things change for? And it's always the the, the big group at the bottom of, of this hierarchy, and that's how it's always been. And that's the sort of idea I've, I've conclusion I've come to in, of late. And as I say, it could be any policy. I mean, we were speaking on immigration, and it's easy to get emotional about that, you know. I mean, I, I see it here sometimes, you know, this a young man working as a waiter said to me, oh, there's a lot of Ethiopians here, which is true. Oh, they're very hardworking people. Some of them have arrived illegally, but they feel that's what they must do, and, and that's what urbanization creates. You know, it creates opportunities for people to sort of look for a better life if they're, if they're at the bottom of the hierarchy and, and, and need to improve themselves. They'll, they'll try to do it whatever way they can. If what you're talking about, this hierarchy, is it's an it is an ancient concept. Like you're talking about the Egyptians, but you know the, the people who have been able to think and ponder and research and discover, and you know, these always came from well, if not a leisure class, uh, certainly a moneyed class. They had, they were affluent. They had social standing. Whereas most of the world has always been about just uh, staying out of the elements, you know, getting out of the rain or the snow or the heat, f- making sure that they have enough food. And in this system, it becomes more and more vicious to try to figure out, you know, if you are on those lower levels, what are you going to do? Well, then you'll be an Ethiopian who goes to Somalia and people hate you because they say you're taking their jobs when the, these are, as you say, just a natural drive to do better, to do better for yourself and to do better for your family. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, going back to what we discussed a little earlier, you know, as an individual, you have to be calm. Well, you have to try to be calm. You have to work at that because there's no real point in becoming upset. And we all know that. It's not easy mm-hmm. to do, but you have to stay calm. And you have to be aware that you know, culture does change, and it, is, it changes in a certain direction. It's driven in a certain direction. Now, I accept everybody will not be aware of that, and so yes, people will become upset. But if you're lucky enough to sort of recognise that much, you have you have options. Um, I mean, one of the things I noticed, and it's just again uh, something recently I was thinking about this year, in fact, is you know the, that phrase when you hear that phrase, you know, buyer beware. Yes. Um, if you stop and think about that, that's saying, you know, there's cheating going on and, and you just have to accept that it's your responsibility mm-hmm. to accept cheating in your culture. But if you look back at, at uh, the history of places like Europe, that wasn't the case always. You know, somebody who lies, cheats and steals uh, his fellow man is, you know, was an outcast. Banished even, you know, the banishings did happen. So now it's, it's the onus is on you. Uh, I don't know exactly when the change happened, but we all sort of accept that culture. If, you know, if you live in a Western country, yes. It's a English-speaking country, certainly. I mean, uh, it's true for England. Um, so, you know, buyer beware, buyer beware. That's something that's drummed into you when you're a child, you know. And you say, well, you know, cheating goes on, and it's your responsibility to not be cheated. Fair enough. But what does that say about your, your culture? And what does it say about what the culture used to be when... It was more based on uh, 
uh, sort of you know, the, the religious foundings of those countries, shall we say, in certain Western countries. In the case, I'm speaking of England, but it could be, you know, Canada or America itself, which had their roots in England. Um, but it was the same in Europe. A place like Germany, you know, had strong Protestant or Catholic, you know, traditions. That seems to have, have gone. Um, now, I, I'm not criticizing the change happening. But um, I think we should all question how the public has allowed the change to happen, you know. How was it dressed up, you know? Suddenly accept that cheating is is, is almost acceptable. It, it, it's just something that happens, where it was very much frowned upon in the past. I had, you know, I don't know. That is a big question. It It almost seems like it's tied in to a Western, more individualistic way of approaching life as opposed to a collectivist society where if it's on you, then by any means you will succeed or you'll win or you'll... But it's, you know, it, I've noticed that they have these shows on television, at least in this country, maybe not currently, but in the past, where it's, how did somebody get away with a con? Now, there's a little bit at the end where they show you, oh, you know, the the cheater, the con artist, the guy, you know, he ended up in jail, but a lot of times he just gets away with it, and there's an almost admiration at the way that these things are presented to the public. Oh, look, he conned a bunch of people out of whatever it was. You know, he got them all involved in a pyramid scheme or some kind of, you know, selling land or options that didn't exist, that kind of thing. And then people think, oh, isn't he clever? So there is an you're almost an admiration for the... Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I couldn't say it better myself. I mean, I, I noticed that as well. I mean... There was a rise at one point of, um, it's pretty big now, it's, it's, you know, you have mini-series about the life of, of famous gangsters, infamous <laughs> criminals, um, you know, Pablo Escobar is one, you know, he was heavily featured in a, in a, in a Netflix uh, drama called Narcos, which was a, a distortion of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the late Pablo Escobar was a very interesting man. Yes, absolutely. Um, aside from being a criminal, he he, he had political ambition and, and uh, you know socialist leanings, um, and that would have aggravated the United States of America because they, they couldn't tolerate that kind of thing. But how it's come to pass that the material side of things, that this man that made lots of money from doing illegal things, is 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 an icon, a cultural icon. Mm-hmm. Um, it looked looked up to by a whole class of young people, um, the disenfranchised, the poor, the wannabe uh, gangsters of this world. It's it's pretty incredible when you think about it, um, and that's why it's it's, it's made into multi-million um, dollar film projects and TV series. Yeah, I noticed. Um, sometimes I I'll just sit and and look at the thing. I won't watch anything at all, but I just see what's being offered. And speaking of narco on, you know, they have one that advertises right next to that on Netflix called Queen of the South. 
and I haven't watched any of it at all, but just from the description that shows when I'm surfing through there, this is a depiction of a woman who flees Mexico because uh, her drug runner boyfriend gets arrested. I, I don't know, because they only give you a paragraph to describe it, but ultimately what has happened in this series, it would appear, is that she has become a high-powered drug dealer herself. And we're talking over a whole range, you know, over several countries. Now, this is a, couple, a work of fiction, but I sit there with the clicker in my hand asking myself, who wants to watch this glorification of a drug dealer, whether they're male or female, whether it's fictional or, or somewhat based on reality, why do they want to watch someone who is a, a criminal, getting over on society, corrupting, uh, dealing in a substance that is definitely going to addict a lot of people and kill many, but somehow it appeals to people's mentality that, oh, look, that, you know, they're getting over on this system, and I, I'm mystified by that. Yeah, you, you know, it's 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 significant. I, I had I wasn't aware of this particular show, but it's significant that you know now the idea of women cheating in you know society and, and being looked up to is is a thing. Mm-hmm. That wasn't always the case. You know, <laughs> I would say it's 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 fairly new. But the idea that you can cheat society and, and, and be applauded and people will look up to you, that's, that's pretty bad in itself, right? Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that this narrative is invested in heavily, that these types of shows are, are promoted to young, impressionable people and even, you know, middle-aged people, it, to me, it's, it's very significant. I think you're looking at culture going in a certain direction. So if tomorrow um, all kinds of criminality happens on a large scale then people would just say well you know uh, good on them <laughs> you know they're, they're very enterprising <laughs> so it, it's amazing really I mean when you step back and you look at it it really is it astounds you how easily people are, are driven in these directions um, but all you can do really is, is try to, to liberate yourself I would never be critical of, of anyone who, who, for whatever, you know, becomes angry because the pressure's too much, or they're depressed or whatever, and they, they sort of make bad decisions in life. But um, the fact that you are gently guided in a certain direction to to go against something that you per- were, were opposed to, you know, you considered morally wrong, you know, what, mm-hmm. a year earlier, or two years earlier, or five years earlier? Right. It's just, it's just incredible, and, and that's what happens. So it's a very powerful thing in this narrative. Yeah, it really is. It's interesting. Well, we, what we haven't uh, covered at all. If if you're interested in getting into it, what happened? How life unfolded for you once you landed in London as a boy and got your education there? And you know, if you want to talk about that, that would be interesting. Sure. I mean, London was was great. I mean, I, I'm particularly fond of those uh, the early years where it was an adventure, you know, something very new, something completely different to what I'd seen before. And having seen something different, I I, I really appreciated London. I mean, I sometimes 
you look at old sort of TV shows from the late 70s or the early 80s of, of London, you know, and it doesn't matter what the show is, like uh, the old cop shows or whatever it may be, and you see the old, you know, taxi cabs, the old buses, uh, things that are no longer there, the old buildings, how they were, you know, they, they weren't particularly, you know, there was no varnish on them, so to speak. They, they, they were, it, was, it was a gritty place. Um, some areas in London were, were pretty tough, you know, they were solid working class areas with, you know, industrial heritage going back a long, long time to the times of British Empire. So I, I loved it. I mean, I, I went to school in London. I finished secondary school in London. I did what we call A-levels there. So that's the step between... It's actually harder than the university. Um, you'll discover when you, when you do it. But um, I guess things have changed now, but um, university was, was certainly easier for me when... Uh, so I did my physics A-level and mathematics and chemistry. And then I moved to Scotland, where I went to university. Um, where did you go I to university? Studied, uh, if, biochemistry. Yeah, you studied biochemistry yes. in Aberdeen, okay. Oh. Interesting. What yeah, were you thinking? Uh, it's uh, very, very far to the north. <laughs> it's what? It's, uh, it's in the north um, yes. of Scotland. What were you thinking that you wanted to do when you... Okay, f first of all, why did you want to go to university in Scotland? Is that because that was where you were accepted? And what were you thinking that you wanted to do when you set out to study biochemistry? I'll, I'll answer the second question first, okay. uh, if I may. So... I actually stumbled into biochemistry. I went to, I was studying geology in my, in my first year, and, um, but I had a, a biology component. So one day, sort of halfway through, there was a lecture on biochemistry given by a professor with, with I remember it distinctly with silver hair, and he was talking about, he was talking about biotechnology, you know, genetic engineering, so mRNA, what can be done with mRNA in the future. And I was astounded, you know, from Monday to Friday, it was, you know, he gave a lecture and we never saw him again. By the time I got to the top of the, the pyramid, so to speak, in biochemistry, he'd moved on, that particular professor. But yeah, I decided to do biochemistry when I realized that, you know, this is very interesting field and there are people who will be given the power of life and death in this uh, fields. I mean, you know, so immunology, uh, genetics, genomics, cytogenetics. I, I delved deeply into that over the years I was there, and I ended up in a place called the Institute of Medical Sciences, which is part of the Abdeen Royal Infirmary, which is the university hospital. So there are all kinds of people in there, and neuroscientists, and but it's heavy on, on molecular biology and gene editing, all kinds of research, genetic engineering. So I, I was fascinated, but I was also, you know, quite disturbed by this, this um, subject. Now, the reason why I went to Abdeen was because I wanted to get into the oil industry, because it's a center for the oil industry, and I was doing geology. And the idea was I'd get back to East Africa at some point, you know a little bit about geology and, and earth science. 
Um, so I, I learned a fair bit about geology and earth science, but I just thought biochemistry was the thing for me. Got into it. But, uh, yeah, I developed a sort of love-hate relationship with it. It's, it's a very dangerous thing. And, you know, I knew then that, you know, in the future there will be a time where biotechnology will come to dominate things um, one way or another. No, one of the things I was learning at the time was, was bioinformatics. So it was very primitive then. It was just simple programs that would match the, the DNA sequence of different species. So we would have like a chimpanzee's DNA, a fragment of chimpanzee's DNA, and a fragment of the human DNA. And, uh, you know, the similarities is there. It's shown to you on the screen, you know, the, how the codes for certain genes are almost identical. Mm -hmm. Not the same, but you can see that there's a pattern there. Now, the genome is is just huge. It's it's a universe onto itself. There's a lot of information in there. Most of it we have no idea. And a single person cannot really know everything. So that's where computers come into it. So bioinformatics is a massive thing right now, today. So proteomics, genomics, all of these sequences can be digitally mapped, created, manipulated, played with, and the products that are created from it. And, um, yeah, so we have technology now that was actually developed in the 80s, um, if we speak about the vaccines, for example. And, and, and when that is injected into a person, the mRNA vaccine, which I, I class as, I mean, I know it's a gene therapy, um, based on my training. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you, you know, you, this is injected into the person and it gives instructions to each and every cell in that person's body. And may I add, it will do it crudely because it's not as good as the, the concept that's already going on, uh, which we don't really understand fully. That is the biological system as is, as we found it. So yeah, it's a, let, let it's me, a, you, you've just it's skipped, a scary subject. It is a scary subject and you've just <laughs> raised a question just then in my mind. So you begin to have a, a, a kind of a fear and respect and see just how dark this whole discipline could be. But you're, you're talking about the, the genome as being really unknowable by one person. That's where the computer comes in. And then this technology, this therapy that you said is crude, it makes me think that what they were doing is not nearly as sophisticated as what I thought they might be up to. In other words, they've let loose something in people that can completely rewrite everything, but it's crude, and they're sort of waiting to see the results of this experiment? I. Or is it more fine-tuned and sophisticated than that? No, it's quite clear that there's there's certainly a Wild West element to it because the legality of it is important. I mean, if, if people had followed the the traditional way of introducing medicines into into for, for use in human populations or even veterinary medicines, yeah, you're talking about many years of, of, of trials and, and rigorous trials and, and approvals and so on. But that all changed literally overnight, and and I kind of expected it because 
it's a completely different thing. It isn't the old medicines. They know what the thing is. They kind of have an idea how people will respond. And people are really motivated to get this done. What really surprised me was how, how, how there was no real debate. I mean, there were professionals who, who objected and so on, but I mean, we remember clearly in the, the time of the pandemic and afterwards how there was just one message, one, one way of saying things. Um, so this subject is, is, it's something I'm, I'm quite familiar with. I don't talk about it too much. Uh, so this is also very novel. You know, I don't talk about it too much either because I don't have any education really in the area. But it, it was interesting to me to see the way in which mRNA v- uh, therapies, the, they call them vaccines, but how simultaneous to the rollout during COVID, you had a different wing, some of the same players involved, like Bill Gates certainly came out to tout the wonders of the vaccines for treating different kinds of cancers and so forth. But so many people have jumped on this bandwagon. Elon Musk is one who has, you know, not only did Tesla supply some kind of manufacturing base for a manufacturer of this um, gene of these gene therapies, he has tweeted and talked about how amazing that this is. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, there have been some problems with the rollout and different batches and so forth and so on. But the technology itself for vaccinations is an amazing future that we're going into. Why are they? I, I mean, we can guess, but do you do you have an educated guess? of why this technology, not just for COVID, but for a vaccination for everything, for all forms of cancer, what is the agenda there? Is it just uh, more it, of the it, Wild West? Well, I think it's, it's, to, it's to bring everything together in, in one place. So, you know, you, you will have a, a one-stop one shop for, for health, Mm-hmm. But from there, you'll, you'll have other things. So, you know, you'll have the individual and, you know, their health is mediated through uh, uh, programs rolled out, you know, whether it's vaccination in this case for, for what we've been talking about or in the future for cancers. There'll be a whole sort of database and a treasure trove of, of data associated with that one person. And it'll all be in one place. And from there you can hang other things like uh, taxation and so on. And it's, it's uh, like a, it's, it's an opening gambit. It's, it's something that's being attempted. And it seems to me this is like the most efficient way or the, the, the way of getting everybody on board. Mm-hmm. And if not everybody, then the majority. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, most people are, are number wiser. They they will they will buy what's being sold, and, mm-hmm. and that's another thing you have to be calm about and and, and and accept. Yes. But I'm not surprised that famous people, um, especially uh, big businessmen, who have, tend to win large contracts from 
from the central fund, shall we call it, are, are all for this because, you know, wh why would they refuse all that money and influence and fame? If they don't do it, somebody else will. I'm quite sure right. of that. So that's why those guys behave the way they do because that's their thing, that's, that's their platform, that's essentially what they're there for. So in essence, you really have very few individuals out there in the world. Right. And so it's very hard to make a, an informed decision on these things. And, and the last few years have shown that. I mean, you, you either are an individual or you're not. Um, you have to sort of stand up and be counted. So you studied biochemistry. You had some reservations about it and you ultimately haven't really done that in your work in your work life correct i am um, i mean i was pretty sure after th three years of of being in, in the lab that i didn't want to be in the lab anymore the only one part of it that may this does interest me still really is there's the computing side of it so the bioinformatics and what they can do these days. So I may have gone in that direction, but for me, the big thing was always coming back to Somalia. So my, my whole sort of working life has been focused, geared towards coming back here, which was never an easy thing to begin with. Um, still not the easiest thing in the world. It's a, it's a challenging place, but it's getting easier. You know, the 90s gave way to the year 2000 and, and what followed. And since 2010, 2012, things have kind of made political sense. And, the, the outside world does engage with Somalia now. The economy's pretty rampant and, and doing well, especially if you're successful. Um, it's, it's not a bad place to be. Yeah, I, I, I needed something to get me back to Africa. And so uh, I got involved with um, sort of... I, I worked as an interpreter briefly, and, and then I got involved in writing... Somali language media and met a few people that were going back to Somalia and had good connections and, and then I thought well why not take the plunge yourself and so I traveled to Mogadishu in 2013 second time I'd been to Somalia first time was in the 90s and when I was before I went to university but first time in Mogadishu which was really special to me because that's where my parents met and, you know, the city loomed large in my, in my consciousness because it was the focus of everything, the, the politics of the country, the culture. And, um, yeah, it changed because the, of the state collapse and civil war and the, the unfortunate bad luck that follows when, when, when Hollywood creates a narrative for you which doesn't fit, you know, the reality. Black Hawk um, Down. <laughs> yeah, Black Hawk Down. Um, and um, then there was uh, Captain Phillips a little later, mm -hmm. which, uh, which I haven't watched. I, I, I pass on that. Um, but it's, it's, it's Tom Hanks. Who, who, who wouldn't know about it? You know, he's, he's on the top of the tree when it comes to, to acting and giving you narratives. Um, I, I like Tom Hanks. I'm not... I'm not critical of Tom Hanks. Oh, he, def um, he definitely seems to have a role to play of, uh, you know, kind of the average Joe who just loves war. 
It's yeah, Forrest Gump is a magnificent film. Uh, I um, I remember watching that in the early nineties in London. So, yeah, I mean, if you know if you know the product that's being sold to you, then you <laughs> you can make a decision for yourself. But I mean, I just I just you know, war war is glamorous for young men. It's it's attractive yes. to young men because they don't know anything. You know. Yeah. Um. um well, there's so, a lot mm. there. It's you know, it's not only the the hero and the warrior and all of that kind of mythology, but in a world in which um, you know that that sense of clan and tribe has been you know obliterated more or less, and a lot of families don't function. You know, that built-in tribe that the military offers is irresistible for a lot of young men. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I can certainly say that's the case. Um, a lot of the guys I was studying with at university went on to join the military there. And um, and I remember distinctly some of those guys just wanted to join the military because it was it gave them a sense of belonging. And mm-hmm. um, so they, they went up and became officers. And one or two of them are still in there in the, in the army after all those years. So it, it does consistently attract young men um, because it, it provides all those things you, you mentioned. What is interesting to me, if you want to talk about this a little bit, you were not born in Somalia. You had almost no time there because of what was going on with your father and your family. You, you're in London before you're seven, but you have this incredible sense of being Somalian, it's like, it, well, I I don't know how you described it to me a few weeks back, but it, it it's just you. It's in your blood, and you your everything that you studied at university was to get you back there, to get you back there. Can you describe that feeling of place and identity uh, that was so strong in you? Yeah, I mean, I I, I speak the language. I mean, I speak Somali and. As it so happens, I like listening to what older people have to say. You know, when you're very young, people are always older than you.
relatives who were in the military, I had relatives who were, you know, like my father who's a, who's a diplomat, worked for the government. And, and it's, it, Somalis are pretty gregarious people, you know, they, they say things in a frank manner, pretty accurate in their descriptions, um, and it, for the longest time it's been an oral society, you know, language is only written in the last hundred years. The Latin script only arrived in the early 70s, it's the one good thing the dictator achieved. <laughs> As I say, he had his good points, but um, he presided over a disaster imbalance. Um, so for me, you know, being connected to Somalia was always always there, and I speak the language. So wherever there is a Somali population, I'll, I'll have a conversation, or I'll learn something new. The strange thing about the state collapse is, you know, it created a situation where there's a big diaspora now. So they're they've travelled to North America, they're they're in Europe, they're all over Africa, they're in Asia. Mm-hmm. I was once working with a young lady who, who speaks Chinese, who was in Beijing for eight years, and I said, well, you speak Chinese? And she said, of course. So she looked at me as, like, as if I was uh, pretty dim-witted. <laughs> uh, naturally, somebody is somewhere for eight years, you know, they'll speak the language. So yeah, the, the Somalis are pretty close-knit, you know, the, the clan system still exists, you, you belong to the country, and then irrespective of the, the superficial, you know, the state formation or the... It doesn't matter for people, really, you know, that this is a pretty strong culture and, and society, and it's gone through incredibly difficult times, and that's the proof, right? Mm-hmm. And the other thing for me personally is, like, you can do something in Somalia, because there's a lot of things that need to be done, and so that was attractive. Mm-hmm. So I've worked in a few areas, you know, since I've come back. I've worked um, in the marine sector, so I've been involved with... Um, Building up, you know, coastal policing and, and law drafting on fighting maritime crime, which was a very big thing a few years back. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked in the capital, I've worked in Mogadishu. Um, at the policy level, with senior politicians. I still work with senior politicians now and again. Um, and in fact, I'm traveling next week with uh, 
on as an aide to a senior political figure in Somalia, participate in a conference. Um, so I have a lot of experiences and I've gained a lot from being here. And I always knew that coming back here would be would be exactly that. It would be beneficial. It would be an ad- adventure that that is worth going through, experiencing. Mm-hmm. But um, also that it would be hard. Um, and I was always prepared for that. So, yeah, there, there, there are tough times, and but there are also good times. Um, and I'd rather do this than be stuck in an office in, in London right now, mm-hmm. uh, year after year. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty much, um, I hope, answers your question. Yes. Now, I, 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 when we spoke to you, described to me that Somalia is an ancient country. It, it's linked, oh, yeah. t- linked to Egypt, to Greece. It has this am- amazing history and culture that that a lot of people, even Somali, are not aware of. That's right. Yes, it's um, the the. the the history goes a long way back. It's very connected, especially where I am now in the northeast, to the to the Arabian Gulf, to what was formerly known as Arabia Felix. Mm-hmm. Um, ancient uh, Somalia was was trading with ancient Greece, uh, with the Phoenicians. Um, so cargoes from here were going to places like Carthage, what is now Barcelona. This is quite amazing when you think about it with Egypt. You know, so there was even a pharaoh who visited the north coast, the mountains I mentioned earlier. So that really appeals to me. You know, I'm, I'm interested in that kind of thing. The papyrus of the Erythrian Sea, that's the Greek document left to us by a mariner from the first century. And it's pretty vivid, you know, talking about the, the, the coastal towns here, really close to where I am now. And, and how they used to trade there and the things they used to trade. And yeah, it's pretty impressive. Um, so Somalia is a really interesting place. Um, it's got spectacular things to see if you go around it. Landing in, you know, a place called Bosasso, right between the, the, the Gulf of Aden and, and the mountains, the Golis Mountains. It's a, newly refurbished airport there it's spectacular you'll never see that anywhere else in the world and wow. um, i've done that a few times so yeah it's it's a very interesting place on many levels and uh and uh for a person like myself that's hugely appealing well that's i i think it's really wonderful that you have achieved something that you wanted to do your whole life and you've been there and you're making a life for yourself and you are also contributing to making your country better yeah if i stop and think about it i have kind of achieved um something i I wanted to do when i was very young and you think wow but uh, i don't often stop and think about it there's always something else to do but i guess that's the same for everybody that's true but I, mean, I like it here. It's a, it's a great place, in my eyes. Mm-hmm. It would be great if you want to send me some photographs or images or anything like that that can support this. I'll make the little visual version of it. And if there's anything you want to share with people, I'll add that in there. Is there anything else that you wanted to get into or cover that we haven't talked about? 
no, I think we've we've pretty much covered everything. I guess we could always, you know, do it again at some some point in the future. There is a lot to say about Somalia, I guess, but um, for now it's I think that's enough for the moment. time we speak when you come back from your trip this conference that might be something that you want to speak about yeah that would be that would be good well i thank you for taking time and talking to me i'm glad we had a good connection because we've had a few uh, attempts where the the connection wasn't so great but i think this was going to work out just fine and and i really appreciate uh, you taking the time osman thank you melissa my, my pleasure All right. Well, we will speak again. And for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Real History.